Our scripture today is taken from Genesis chapter 33, if you want to follow along. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with, graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elahi Israel. Genesis tells us that Yahweh the Creator gave humanity his blessing and authority to rule over the world. It's a strong start. But two chapters in, this kingdom was stolen by rebel spiritual beings who tricked man and woman into disobedience and ruin. And so Yahweh made promises to a particular tribe, a particular family, that through their blessing, all the other tribes and families in the world would find blessing. And the rest of Genesis follows the story of this family, through Abraham, through Isaac, and for the last couple of weeks in Jacob, and then we'll end with Joseph here in May. And while Jacob did not experience the full reality of what was coming, he saw previews of power, grace, sacrifice, the new life that look ahead to Jesus and the salvation that he brought to the world. Colossians chapter 1 says of Jesus' work, And you, meaning all of us, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. Reconciliation is a core aspect of what Jesus did for us. He reconciled us to God. Reconciliation is the putting back together of a relationship that had fallen apart. And Genesis 33 is this sort of final showdown between Jacob and his estranged brother Esau. Or at least Jacob was expecting some kind of a final showdown, and we see that through much of his activity in the prior chapters. What he got instead was reconciliation. Those of you, there are like probably five of you who know, I titled this sermon Arrested Development, and you know what I'm referring to. It was a TV show that was on years ago. It's, it's on the internet now. But it's about a highly dysfunctional family. It's a comedy, but the humor is grounded in the fact that the family members just continue to be terrible people, and the different hijinks and the different things that they get up to because they just don't get any better. And so the show is called Arrested Development. They don't develop. But Genesis paints us a different picture, right? And so often that is our experience, that people don't get any better. And family drama and dysfunction can be one of the most painful things that we experience. But Genesis 33 shows us a different way, a pathway of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the business of heaven. And as a family of God's people, it is to be our business too. It's the essence of the gospel. And our sermon summary this morning, for your note takers out there, is this. God is made known by Jesus through his people. God is made known by Jesus through his people. Now on the surface, that doesn't, may not sound like it has a whole lot to do with reconciliation, but I hope to make that clearer as we move on. Jacob expected some kind of a military attack or some kind of form of hostility from his brother. But God, it seems, has been working in Esau, and the elder brother embraces Jacob wholeheartedly. All has been forgiven. Back in chapter 32, before Jacob wrestles with the angel or wrestles with God, he had sent a bunch of livestock and things to Esau as a gift. And really, it's sort of a giving back of the blessing that Jacob had stolen from Esau. And we see that Jacob approaches Esau as if he's a great king. He bows seven times on his approach, and that's how you in that day and age would approach a very important person or some kind of a tribal elder. And so he's giving Esau the respect and the honor that he hadn't given him when they were younger. But it seems that Jacob's efforts at humility and appeasement are, I think, righteous. It was good of him to try and put back what had been stolen. But they're also unnecessary. Esau is already ready to forgive him. Esau came ready to reconcile that day. And I think that verse 10 is the key to understanding what is happening between Jacob and Esau. And we've previously seen in the, the different stories with Jacob, and, and really all throughout Genesis, that, uh, that appearances, trickery, faces, the faces of things are a powerful theme running throughout all of these different stories. And Genesis 33, I think, is the culmination Wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32 and meeting with Esau, reconciling with Esau, really two chapters. Well, they're obviously two chapters of the same story because they're both of Genesis. But they're really two sides of the same sort of event, I think, in Jacob's life. Jacob, the trickster, the heel grabber, the blessing thief, he who wrestles with Yahweh, looked in his brother's face and saw something he didn't expect but nonetheless recognized. For I have seen your face, Jacob says, 
which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. This is one of those little reminders that the biblical authors, the folks who wrote the Bible, just kind of thought about telling stories differently than we do. We tend to really want to emphasize the main point and like highlight it. You'll see this in movies, right? Big plot developments are very obvious. There's like a swell in the music and all these other things. But in the Bible, often, they'll fly right past something that's very important that we just have to be watching for. And I think that this is one of the, I mean, they're all like this, but this story is a good example of that, that I think what Jacob says is key. For I have seen your face, he says to Esau, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. I think there are at least two senses to what Jacob meant. Wrestling with God has made it possible for Jacob to behold Esau as his brother. Seeing God more clearly allows him to see Esau more clearly. I think also as well, Jacob recognizes that Esau is meeting him in the same manner that he had met Yahweh the night before, in unmerited grace. Jacob realizes that he and Esau have had a wrestling match of their own over decades, which Jacob cannot win through his own strength and trickery, just like he couldn't win against God. Because of all he's been through, Jacob can finally see his brother as God sees him. Jacob sees that Esau has come to him entirely able to overpower him. Esau comes with a bunch of soldiers. Jacob comes with a bunch of kids and sheep. So Esau clearly has the upper hand in terms of power. But Esau is ready to reconcile. And in this story, Esau really is a Christ-like exemplar. He's willing to forgive. He holds no grudge against Jacob. And he exacts no price from him. He tries to reject the gift that Jacob sent. Jacob insists that he keeps it. Like I said earlier, God is made known by Jesus through his people. Jesus reveals to us that the heart of God is ready to reconcile. Therefore, we as his people ought to be ready to reconcile. Our fitful, incomplete, messy efforts at reconciliation are how Jesus is displayed. 1 John 4 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In high school, I had a friend whom we'll call Randall, who I hated deeply. And by how Randall treated me, I think that the feeling was mutual. Make fun of each other constantly, we're rivals in, in most things. And so it was very confusing when I would go over to his house and his mother would shower me with praise, ask me questions about my life, just very, very, a huge fan of Ben. And at the time, I realized that she must know how awful her son was, and so she was trying to make it up to me by, you know, lavishing me with with praise and compliments. The summer before our senior year, I came to faith in Jesus, and six months later, Randall rededicated his life to Christ. And before we graduated, Randall apologized for all the different ways that he had hurt me or or, uh, made fun of me. 
And he admitted that, in fact, he had always looked up to me, admired me, was glad I was his friend. And now suddenly his mother's kindness made sense. He'd been going home for years and telling her about how great I was and how good a friend I was, whereas I was going home and not wishing for his death, but definitely wishing that they'd moved to Missouri or some other, or some other place. It turns out that I was the bad guy. I mean, he wasn't great either, but, you know, he, he did those things, I guess, and still liked me, whereas I was doing these things because I despised him. And in that conversation, I confessed how much I had despised him. We forgave each other. We parted in peace. And we didn't become best friends. I haven't spoken to him since 2009 when we graduated. But we would have missed out on much forgiveness, peace, and humility if we had not had that conversation, if we had not reconciled. As far as we know, Jacob and Esau never meet again. This is it in Genesis 33. I may be wrong, but I think that this is their, their reconciliation and their farewell. Jacob refuses to go with Esau to the southern hills where he has his, his stronghold, right? So reconciliation can be real and still be messy and still be somewhat incomplete, right? They didn't all ride off into the sunset with singing forest animals and it was happily ever after. We may have to reconcile several times, but I think it's worth it because God's glory is worth it. Unresolved conflicts and wounds accumulate in churches when we refuse to reconcile. And I have no desire to rehearse any of the conflicts that have gripped this church, except to urge each of you, if there is lingering hurt or anger or fear towards another member of this family in your heart, then I urge you, by the power of the Spirit of Jesus, seek to be reconciled with that person. The cost of not reconciling is greater than the cost of seeking it. We tell ourselves that it's better to avoid all conflict, and I think as Midwesterners, all of us, not just people at Calvary, but we all hate it. We hate conflict and we avoid it at all costs. But think about how much pain and hurt we carry because we don't do that. Many of you know this in your families, right? Things that go unsaid and then stay unsaid for decades. Why upset the other person, we ask? Why bring up old arguments? Why risk dividing the church? And sometimes those are very good questions to consider. We shouldn't just lightly dismiss those things. But I think often there are masks for cowardice, for rage, and for bitterness. The enemy does use conflicts to spoil churches. That absolutely happens. We've seen that, I mean, all over the place over this last year. Different conflicts over things have split churches apart or, or shut them down or whatever else. That does happen. But do you see that if many of the members of a congregation are separated from each other by unreconciled conflicts, then the church is already divided? Seeking reconciliation 
may get loud and it may get messy, but the cost of not recon reconciling is greater than the cost of seeking it. And I think I say this both as an encouragement and as a, not the opposite of an encouragement, but as a conviction, right? I think that we do this well sometimes, and we do this not great other times. And even the same person, right? Like, I feel like there have been times where I have been able to pretty directly uh, have conversations with people, and it's gone well, and we've been able to move forward, and that's good. And then there are other things where I have not sought that reconciliation. So it's not, you know, I'm not trying to come down on us here. In some ways, we do this well. I think it's good. I think Calvary errs on the side of wanting fellowship and unity, and I think there's a lot of good about that. It would be miserable being a pastor if most of the congregation was ready to have a fight all of the time. <laughs> Maybe people like enjoy that sort of church, but man, that would be exhausting. So I think it's good. I think we err on the, on the, on the good side of that equation, but I, I do want to put that out as, as a conviction for us. And I think that the costs to not seeking reconciliation, I mean, they're, they're manifold, but I think a huge one is bitterness. Right? And we see that in each other sometimes. We see a hardening of heart. Not just towards one another, but you see a hardening of heart begin to happen towards the Lord. And for the exact reason that John said, we cannot claim to love God whom we have not seen and yet hate or refuse to be reconciled or refuse to forgive the brother that we have seen. But I think there are perhaps greater costs to the honor and glory of God amongst us in our community. God is made known by Jesus through his people. But if we're not seeking reconciliation, then we're not revealing Jesus. And if we're not revealing Jesus, then we're wasting our time here. As I've urged you several times over the last 12 months, and we've been doing it, Calvary, continue to fight for this fellowship of believers. That was needed to be true before the pandemic. It's definitely been true during the pandemic, and it will certainly continue to be true after the pandemic. Fight for this fellowship of believers. I ran across a quote last week that I wanted to share with you. If there is to be a fight in your church, the author says, a retired pastor, make sure it's a good one. Fight the good fight, not the bad fight. A bad fight is with your parishioners or among them. The good fight is against the devil and his minions, not against human flesh and blood. I was greatly heartened and convicted by that. If there's to be a fight in your church, make sure it's a good one. You know, one of the things that I personally have had to continue to come to terms with in this season is that there's not going to be a single day where we flip a big switch and the life of our church goes back to what it was like before COVID. There just won't be. It'll be a transition. It has been a transition, right, as we've, you know, slowly gotten rid of things and, you know, that transition continues to happen, but there won't just be a single day. And some things are going to stay changed, which grieves me. I think that the Lord has something for us in the way that things have changed, but the change itself is sad. But what has never changed 
and can ever change is the Lord's call on us to be people of reconciliation, extending patience and forgiveness to one another as we fight the good fight. Not against one another for whatever opinions about whatever we may hold, but against the evil one and against sin in our midst. I think as well, in a a bigger sense, that God's people in America have a tremendous opportunity to be, and challenge, to be ministers of reconciliation right now. Our country is splintering. That anxiety you feel is real, and I think in many ways it's appropriate to what we're seeing and where things appear to be headed. I was reading a magazine this past week, and uh, the article was about how the internet doesn't have to be awful, so they, you know, talking about different ways that we can improve it, you know, good luck. But one of the, one of the in the early quotes that stuck out to me was the, the author said, talking about the splintering of, of the United States, and he said that we, we can't even agree on what we're arguing about anymore. We can't even agree on what we're arguing about anymore. That bummed me out for like 45 minutes. But I think it's true. The political insanity, economic damage from COVID, disasters of shifting climate, folks, these things aren't going to go away fast, or ever. And on a merely human level, you and I are nearly powerless in the face of these things. We can vote, we can peacefully protest, we can run for office ourselves, and that's about it. I think that's okay, because it's not up to any one of us to rule the world. But what is within our responsibility is what is within our reach. The people, institutions, and communities that we are actually in relationship with. You know, I think one of the challenges that the church faces today, not just this church, but the church that we, that we really didn't face in previous eras of church history, is that Christians now, every minute of every day, can be immediately aware of all of the things that are happening in the world Good and bad, but for different reasons, uh, media companies tend to highlight the bad. And now we're beginning to experience a political climate where we're expected to have opinions fully formed, basically in a matter of seconds, about the different things that are happening. It makes me feel exhausted. I don't know if you ever feel exhausted, but it makes me feel exhausted. So I think it's actually good news that God does not expect any of us to run the world. I feel like that's good news. We can't anyway, obviously. Take a look around. But what is within our responsibility is what is within our reach. The people we know, the places we know, the institutions we know. And we cannot think of ourselves or our families or our church as an environment sealed off from the wider community because I think we can fall prey to that as well. Right? Those are those problems over there, but that's not happening here. In the the young adult group, we talk about taking a lively and loving interest in the souls around us. You may have heard me say that quote before. A lively and loving interest in the souls around us, not leaving them to perish. If other people's problems are also God's problems, then those of us who belong to God 
have to own those problems too in the ways that we're able. Again, what is within our reach. Can any of us march to Minneapolis or the southern border or Washington, D.C. and fix it? No, we cannot. And it's not our responsibility to. But we follow and worship the Lord of heaven and earth, who will be glorified in all cities and nations. And so let us do as much as we can and then pray for the rest of it. Let us turn away from voices that only highlight difference or grievance and seek stories and champions of reconciliation at work in our world. Ultimately, we in our human nature are allied with sin and death. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's the consequences of what they did. They sold the farm to the evil one and are therefore enemies of life and goodness, the enemies of God. And that could be hard to recognize. We don't say that very often anymore because I think it freaks people out a little bit. <laughs> it probably should. But it is the truth that Scripture teaches. And while we made ourselves enemies of God, he has never made us his enemies. Obviously not. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. They went and hid. But then God came and sought them out despite what they had done. The Creator's goal has always been to reconcile us to back to himself and also to reconcile us to one another. Jacob and Esau point forward to Jesus, who is the ultimate forgiver, the ultimate reconciler, the ultimate restorer of blessing. And Esau's reaction in verse 4 may very well have inspired Jesus' description of the merciful father in the parable of the prodigal son. There's quite a few parallels there. Jesus says in Luke 15, But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That is the Lord's heart towards each of us, ready to reconcile. And those of you listening, either here or at home, who have never pledged your allegiance to Jesus, Today is a great day to come to him in faith and accept him as your Lord and Savior. And if you are far from God this morning, I pray that you would know that. I pray that you would realize that there is no freedom in getting what you want and getting everything that you want, that you have harmed others through your selfishness. I pray that you wouldn't be able to look away from it, that you would have to acknowledge what you've done and I pray as well that you would know the love that God has for you, the abundant forgiveness and reconciliation on offer through Jesus' death and rising again. The invitation is open to be restored to your true family. And if that's you, Pastor Clayton and I would love to hear about that, to celebrate with you, get you ready to be baptized. And those of us who follow Jesus for a long time need to refresh our reconciliation with him, or at least refresh or remind ourselves of our reconciliation with him. Not because God turns away, but because our hearts produce idols like cows produce, you know, you know what. I guess they produce milk too, that's a good thing, but the other thing. And over the last year, many of us have failed to love our fellows, put others' needs before our own. 
And that means that we have diminished in our love of God, going back to what John said. Many of us have reduced our hope, our confidence that God will do good by his people. We don't trust him as much as we used to. Many of us have been seduced by idols to place our highest trust and identity in that which is not God. And let Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5 be spoken to you this morning from the mouth of the Lord. Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in favorable time, I will listen to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Genesis 33 ends with Jacob building an altar to the honor of the mighty God of Israel. And we know things don't go great in the next chapter, as Clayton uh, preached last week, but this ends with him building an altar. He recognizes that his life has been spared, his brother reconciled, and the first installment of the promised land purchased by the power of God, not by his own strength and trickery. And that's what the name of the altar means, the might or the power of the God of Israel. Left to ourselves, our discipleship to Jesus will founder, our country will disintegrate, and our church will break into little bite-sized pieces. But we're not left to ourselves. For the God of forgiveness and reconciliation has come to us in Jesus. By his atoning death and resurrection power, Jesus is forming us to be agents of reconciliation, just like him. And yes, it will be piecemeal, it will be small, it will be messy, but that's exactly what Jesus told us the kingdom of God would be like. And I'll close with some of his words from the Gospel of Luke. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you listen. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. In Jesus' name, amen.